And Father, I just thank you that you will just uh, lead us into this uh, message. We know this is your heart, Lord Jesus. We ask that you will override, it, Lord, in our lives anything that is not of you, Father, any ideas that have not come from you, Father. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to speak into our lives, to change the way we view life, Lord Jesus. We ask that we will be transformed to be like Jesus, Lord, in the way we think, in the way we feel, and the things that we do. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would change us to be more like you so that we can reach those who are lost. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. So we're going to talk about social justice. Now, social justice, what is social justice? Is it fair that... Um, you get someone like uh, Tiger Woods who can earn a m millions of dollars in a couple of hours playing a game of golf and yet somebody else is born into uh, poverty and into oppression in another part of the world and lives their whole life in poverty and oppression. Is it fair that that goes on? Is it fair that one human being is born into freedom and wealth when another person is born into poverty and oppression? Is that fair? What do you think? Is it fair? No, life is not fair. That's not fair. And I suppose social justice addresses the unfairness of life. It addresses the difficulties that we have in terms of what is fair and what is not fair. And God clearly shows us that he has um, an attitude with regard to social injustice. And he has an attitude with regard to uh, holding us accountable for economic justice, and that is the right and the freedom of individuals to work to make a living. So economic justice deals with your right as an individual to have an opportunity in life to work and to make a living. That's economic justice. God is interested also about legal justice. Legal justice has to do with um, what's right and wrong according to the law. And so legal justice, if, if you look at um, the articles that come through your newspaper, you'll find people are suing for defamation because somebody stood up in front of TV, national prime TV, and they said something about them that was untrue and wrong, that would defame their character. So they had to have the freedom to rectify that, the freedom to go to court, to, that justice would be done so that the person who told the lie publicly would be... Uh, sued and that, and that it would be known that that person didn't do the thing that that person is saying. So we have that sort of thing happens. This is, called, um, this is called social justice in terms of legal justice. It means that if you do something wrong, you can be brought to court and you can be punished for that and you have to, be a, have, to have the right to be protected in the law. That's legal justice. Where that isn't, isn't affected in people's life, there's an injustice. People think, I have no rights before the law. I don't have a right to... Well, take those um, people that were given by that big drug company um, a drug to overcome um, morning sickness. What was that drug called? Thalidomide, yeah. And uh, then the... Uh, uh, you know, 10,000 children are born without arms and without legs and they're suing the, government, they're suing the, the drug company now. That's called legal justice. We want justice. They want justice. The company says, oh, we're very sorry about that. We, um, we didn't really mean to do that. We just made lots of money out of you. Um, and, but, you know, we're sorry that that happened. 
But that's not justice. Justice is fixing up the problem or trying to get some re- uh, remedy. They're trying to sue them so that they can, they can make uh, millions of dollars and pay for the, the thing that, that they're looking for justice. That's legal justice. So in a, in a society where there is no legal justice, it, God is not happy about that. Also, we have a thing called distributive judge justice, which means it's the right to be able to the individuals to carry the burden of society as well as reap the benefits of society. So in a communistic country, everybody carries the burden of society, but not everybody reaps the benefits of society. We try in the capitalist society for, to have some sort of level of freedom so that if you, are, if you are going to pay your taxes, at least you can keep your profit or some of your profit so that you have an equal balance. And, a, and that's the right to be able to make money and to distribute it equally. You know, you have to have your burden that you should tax, you pay your taxes, and at the same time you can do whatever you want with your profits. Is God interested in these things? He's very interested in these things. He's interested in these things more than you understand. Listen to what he says, and this is God's perspective. In, in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 to 9, he says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's justice. That's social justice. God wants you to have social justice in our society. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 to 28, it says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, neighbor, come back later and I'll give it tomorrow when you have it now with you. That's justice in terms of distributing justice. God is very interested in these things. God's perspective is, is that every human being has a God-given moral duty to protect fellow human beings from social injustice whenever and wherever it is practical to do so. So God looks at society and says, you have a responsibility to stand up for and to protect the needs and the rights of others. And I'm watching you. That's God's perspective. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 5 to 7, he, he speaks to uh, uh, Israel and he says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, then the alien is the refugee. If you do not suppress, oppress the refugee, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in the place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. And so he's, God is actually saying to uh, Israel, you know, if you want to stay here, you better act justly. You better have social justice happening amongst you. They were actually told to look after the refugees. They were told to look after the poor, the widowless, the, the, the fatherless. They were, they were told to tend for them and the orphans. I suppose it comes down to the fact that God is concerned about that because he places value on individuals' lives. We, we sometimes think, well, what value do I have? What worth is my life? Do I have worth before God? I think you do. You're created in the image of God. And because you're created in the image of God, God places worth on you. Uh, you and I know that we are worthless in terms of our sin. We are worthless in terms of the way we have left God and walked away from God. We, were, we, we didn't deserve his grace. But God, even when we were lost, put worth upon us. Because in, in um, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus tells us two parables. He tells us one parable about uh, the man who looks and looks for treasure in the field. And when he finds treasure in the field, he sells all that he has to buy that field so he can get the treasure. And then the next parable says, 
the, a, a merchant look, is looking for a, a pearl of great price. And when he finds the pearl of great price, he sells all that he has to purchase that pearl of great price. And I think they're saying the same thing, but they're using a different figure. And I think the diff, different figure shows us very clearly that there's two things that he's speaking about here. First of all, we are the treasure in the field because there's lots of us and we're all unique and genuine, uh, beautiful. And then God's, he's, God's, he looks down, he sees the treasure. Jesus sees the treasure in the field and he's willing to leave heaven. He's willing to leave his equality with the Father to clothe himself as a servant and to come onto earth and to die in your place because he sees value in you. I don't understand why he sees value, but he does. He sees value and he leaves heaven because he loves and he, and he wants to see you saved. He doesn't want to see you damned. And we then see value in the pearl of great price because we see Jesus. He is the pearl of great price and we sell all that we have. We give up all that we have for Jesus. So God sees value in us. And this whole idea of social justice is because individuals are created in the image of God and they have value. You cannot look at people around you and say, you're worth nothing. You're worthless. God does not see men and women, boys and girls as being worthless. He sees them as being worthwhile or worth something. Enough that he would leave heaven and and take them. So this social justice is built upon the premise that individuals are worth something and they should be treated with justice and fairness. The Good Samaritan teaches us this whole idea to love your neighbor is to help somebody or help people in need until they become self-sufficient. That's the whole idea. Remember, Jesus said there are two great commandments and he says, what, you know, he asked, this guy said, what are the two great commandments? And Jesus says, this is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength and love thy neighbor as thyself. The second, he says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, let me explain to you what loving your neighbor is. He says, if you find somebody, even if they are of a cultural difference, to you and of different beliefs to you he says you should help them put yourself out for them even if they're your enemies and you should lift them up and you should pick them up and help them to be sufficient so they can go on with life that's loving your neighbor here in this social justice right there and that is social justice they look and say these people are worthless the levi walked away and said it's a samaritan it's what's dead you know or it's laying there and the samaritan comes down and he's got no He's got a a heart for the worth of the person who's laying there and goes and picks them up. That's social justice. All people have a moral duty to help other people who are disadvantaged in society. There's a moral duty before God. The Israelites had, um, uh, like I said, a whole system set up for social justice. They they spoke about the year of Jubilee in, in Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 1 to to 11. Now the year of Jubilee was every seventh year. So what happens is you went into debt and after seven years you hadn't paid your debt off, you couldn't pay it off, it became too big for you. Then at the year of Jubilee they would clear the debt. Oh, give us a year of Jubilee in Australia. You know, we pay our debts off for year after year after 30 years, we're still paying the house loan off type thing. And back in Israel, no, they don't have that. They have seven years, it's as much as you can go into debt for. And after seven years, the debt is completely wiped out. You're free from debt. They just wipe the debt away. That's the year. And why? Because social justice. The idea was it's wrong for people to get so in debt that they are driven down into poverty. So at the year, if you've tried and tried and tried to pay it off after seven years and you haven't been over it, then the debt is free. They they, they clear it. 
So when you loan something to someone and you give them an opportunity to pay it off, after seven years, you know if they haven't paid it off, your money's gone. You lost your money. That's it. That's the system in the Jews. They also had what they called the third year tithe. Now they had tithing every year, but the third tithe, the third year tithe was the tithe when they would bring all their monies and they would take it to a city and a place. And at the end of that year, they would supply for the Levi, the alien, that's the refugee, the orphan and the widow to come and eat and be satisfied. That was like 3.3%, 10% over three years, so 3.3% annually, they paid for a welfare tax to feed the poor. That was part of their system. God set it up because he said social injustice is wrong and I don't like social injustice. It shouldn't be part of my kingdom. The Gentiles were considered to be expected to live according to that as well. We think, well, we're Gentiles and pagans. We don't have to live under God's laws. But God had an attitude towards Sodom and Gomorrah and he used it and he said to them in Ezekiel, he said, now this is the sin of your system, Sodom. And he's, he's talking to Israel. He says, this is the sin of your sister, Sodom. This is what she says. She, was, he, he, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So God looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and part of the reason why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was just not because of all the bad things they were doing in terms of the sexual things that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was five cities in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and those five cities were in the incredible um, flourished and they had lots of gardens and they had lots of wealth. And you go back into the book of Genesis, it said that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were flourishing like the Garden of Eden. They had that much produce there, but they did not look after the poor. They had abundance, but they didn't look after the poor. And God was, took exception to that. He says, here he says, they did not help the poor and the needy. God says it's essential that there's some sort of social justice taking place. We get that when we actually read the book of Corinthians, the second book of Corinthians, and Paul starts talking about giving in the church. We get an idea that, they, that God wants there to be a sense of equality. That nobody is to be overly rich and nobody is to be so poor. He wants some sort of level of equality. So we read these words. He says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there may be equality. So he didn't want somebody to be relieved and you to be hard-pressed in terms of your giving. He didn't want somebody to have, oh, look, I don't have to give. I get money given to me. And then the other person saying, oh, I have to go into debt to give them money. You know, he didn't, that wasn't what he wanted. He says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what what you need. Then there will be equality. So he's looking at sort of bringing a leveler into the economy of a church so that those who have wealth are able to distribute to those who don't have wealth so that they're looking after the needs of others. So that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts when we looked at the church in the book of Acts. Those who had extra blocks of land would bring, they would sell it and they'd bring the money into the church and the, 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 the apostles would distribute it to those who were poor, who had nothing, and they would meet the needs of the poor people. There was social justice in that community. Paul continues and says, As it is written, he who's, who gathers much did not have too much, and he who gathers little did not have too little. God was interested in social justice. It's not something that's, foreign to God it's not something that's that goody two-shoes people had to do on the side you know who love charity this is this is basic to God's heart for humanity 
So where do we begin? Where do we begin in our own lives with regard to social justice? I like Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 just comes after Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, it says, what are the last times? What's going to be happening in these last days? And Jesus starts telling them about all the sort of things that they should be looking out for, the deception that's going to be, earthquakes and famines, wars and rumors of wars, people leaving and people being deceived. And and so he actually lays down an idea of what will be happening in the last days. And then we move on to chapter 25 and the last thing in chapter 24 he actually talks about a, a the the the, um, the the master who is not treating his um or the um, steward who's not treating treating his servants right and he says i'm going to hold you accountable i think that's talking about ministers of religion who actually don't treat their parishioners right i think he said laying a foundation when it starts coming down i'm going to deal with the ministers first and i'm going to straighten them out if they don't treat their parishioners right if they're doing the wrong thing with the parishioners i'm going to sort them out completely if they start bashing and drinking and drinking and thinking they can get along in church and do fine, he says, then I'm going to come and I'm going to sort them out. When they don't think I'm going to come, I'm going to really sort them out. So you'll start with the ministers first to sort them out. And then he goes on and he, and he gives us a couple of parables and, and, and uh, well, I'd say an account of what's going to happen. So I want to talk to you about those three things, that lessons that we learn in chapter 25. And the first lesson we learn in chapter 25 is that we need to have God's supply. He talks about the, the uh, parable of the, um, the wise and the foolish virgins, and I'll talk to you about that. The second thing we learn is that we need to increase God's supply, and that's the message of the talents. The, the parable of the talents tells us that. And the third thing we learn in that chapter is that God will we will be assessed by God on what we use God's supply and how we use God's supply. God is going to be looking and assessing us with regard to that. So let's have a look at that. We need to have God's supply. That's the first thing. Now, when you look at the first, if you go to your Bibles and you have a read, in Matthew chapter 25, 1 to 13, that's where he talks about the wise and the foolish virgins. He says there, at the time the kingdom of heaven will be like... Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, we're not talking about the world. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. So we're talking about church. And so we're talking about people in church. We're talking about people in church, ten virgins, people who are not met Jesus yet. They're, going to, they're waiting for Jesus to come. They think they're safe. Ten of them waiting for Jesus to come. He says five of them are foolish and five are wise. So we're talking about church people. He says in the church, 5% are going to be foolish and five, uh, 50% are going to be foolish and 50% are going to be wise. He says the foolish ones took their lamps and did not take any oil with them. So they had their lamps and they had oil in it, but they didn't take any extra oil with them. The wise ones, however, took jars, oil in jars along with their lamps. So they had their lamps as well as an extra jar of oil. So that's what's the difference. The difference between the wise and the foolish were those who had um, oil and those who had, didn't have oil. And so we know what it tells us is that the, the, the bridegroom went away for a long time, and so, so everybody went to sleep. Jesus has been away a long time. We've been waiting for him. Everybody's gone to sleep. He said, and then the shout goes out. He says, the bridegroom's coming, the bridegroom's coming. Let's all get up. And they wake up and they trim their lamps. Okay, they, they trim them down. And the ones who didn't take extra oil with them recognized and said, oh, our oil's running out. And they looked at the person who had the extra oil. They said, you know, you ought to share now with us. 
you ought to share. You ought to give us some of your oil and, and help us because we're running out of oil. And you know what? They did not share their oil. And they weren't condemned for not sharing their oil. Because when you are looking at this parable, it's about what you have in God, what you've received from God. And you can't share that with somebody. You've got to get that for yourself. And when you get that for yourself, that's what you got. But if you don't have it, you can be sitting in church. If you don't have it, you're going to miss out. So Jesus is actually saying to you, he says, this is, this is the important thing about this. You think you want to get to heaven. You think that being in church is going to get you there. You, you may be not going full out of this, but you know, you, you think that just being in church is going to get you to heaven. It's not going to get you to heaven, folks. It says, the oil speaks of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Oil always speaks about the presence of the Holy Spirit. So you can't give away extra. You just got to keep your extra for yourself. But if you haven't got enough of God, you won't last the distance. And so this is about keeping God center in your life. The Bible tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13, it says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The, the word sealed is to be marked with an impress. Like the Holy Spirit comes along and he says, you want, you want me in your life? You ask Jesus to come into your life? He says, yeah. So the Holy Spirit comes and he seals your life. Then we're told to be filled with the Spirit. That's the extra. You know, get some more. You know, get filling yourself with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. Keep walking with God, you know. So you say, I asked Jesus into my heart five years ago. What have you done since then? Nothing really. I just got my oil in my lamp. My oil in my lamp is all I need. It's not enough. You've got to take your oil in your lamp and you've got to make sure that oil is increasing. It's got to be going. It's got to be growing. The Holy Spirit talks about coming into our lives but it's not that doesn't stop there it's not the holy spirit just coming into it. it's being filled with the holy spirit and keeping on going with god you see we get this thing how much is enough versus having more than enough so we walk in the church and church comes like you know i want to be part of church and i'm just going to do just enough just enough to sort of make sure i get across the line you know that's not enough to get you across the line you've got to have more than enough to get you across the line this is not about being in church, playing church. This is about walking with Jesus on a daily basis. And if you're not walking with Jesus on it, you haven't got enough. You have one moment experience. You've got your little light and your light shining in here. You've got lamp, oil in the lamp and that's fine. But then when it comes to really going for God, it's like I don't pray, I don't read, I don't, I'm not developing my relationship with him, I'm not building my relationship with him, I'm just sitting on what I got. You know, the thing that makes me burn in life is not the Holy Spirit that I'm really passionate about. The thing that makes me burn in life is the things that are in the world. I love the things in the world more than I love God. There are people in the church who sit and they don't love God with a passion. They love the things of the world more than they love God. And they think... I've got my little lamp, it's going to be all right. You know what? You are going to run out of oil. You need to keep per persevering and pressing on into God. It's not enough to sit and say, i got what it takes here. You've got to keep pressing into God. You've got to keep going for more. When everybody else is saying, well, well I just go to church and have my friends in church, that's not enough. You've got to get in the, into the place in the morning where you get up and say, God, teach me, what do you want me to do today? Till your mind is so absorbed with God so that you're overflowing with oil. 
You have extra oil and you can't give that to anybody. You've got to get that yourself. You have extra oil. It's pouring out of you. You're thinking about God. You're dreaming about God. You're walking around thinking God things all the time. You're not caught up with fashion. You're not caught up with the world music. You're not caught up with the fads of society. You're caught up with Jesus. You've got extra oil. Then you're right. You're ready. But unless you've got that, you're going to run right out. The devil knows. He'll just say, you know, I, I thought, you know, Jesus says lukewarm is not hot enough. If you think that it's, okay, I'm in church. I'm just so well, I'm not cold like out there. You know, there's people, they sleep with other people. They drink and get drunk. I'm not, oh, that's cold out there. I'm warmer than them. But, you know, if you're not fiery hot, you're not hot enough. That's the bottom line. That's the extra jar of oil. The difference between a wise virgin and a foolish virgin is the extra jar of oil. And I can't give you mine. I have to develop my own. I've got to walk and have an extra jar by my walk. You can't, I can't give you that and say, here, Olivia, have extra oil. She's got to get her own oil from God. And walk in the abundance that she gets from God. God wants you to have abundance, but you can't give that away. It's yours. And so he is the source of all abundance. Well, if you want to start, abundance starts with God. If you have something to give, it's got to start with you receiving something from God. And you can't give until you've got something from God. And it's not a case of just getting the least amount. You have to get as much as you can, and you have to get as much as you can on a daily basis of God. As it said in Matthew chapter 24, it says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. A society is increasing in wickedness all the time. You bring wickedness into your house, you turn the TV on, and all of a sudden the wickedness is sitting talking to you in your house speaking to you when you turn the radio on and you're listening to all that rubbish that comes across the radio. It's speaking to you. The wickedness is speaking. It says, cool down. Don't be so hot. Don't be so hot for Jesus. Settle down. Don't be so over the top. You know what? That's just cooling you down, getting you lukewarm. You know why? Because it's taking away your oil. It's taking away your extra jar of oil. And in the end, you won't get in. So what makes you burn? What is your passion? Look at yourself. Stop for a while. Think about it this week. How many times did you wake up this week with Jesus on your mind? How many times did you strive to find a place, a solitude place where you could open your word and read about Jesus? How much time did you spend thinking about Jesus and saying, Jesus, help me to change. Help me to move from where I am to where you want me to be. How much time did you spend praying and asking Jesus, Jesus, show me what you want to do in life. Lead me by your spirit. Guide me by your spirit. Teach me by your spirit. How much time did you spend doing this this week? That would be an indication of what's burning inside of you. An indication of how much you are burning up about Jesus. If you say, well, I didn't spend any time in prayer and I didn't spend any time reading the Bible, but I spent a lot of time watching telly, I spent a lot of time watching footy, I spent a lot of time playing games, I spent a lot of time 
communicating and doing other things, but I didn't spend much time with God, then that would be an indication of where your burn is. And that would be serious stuff if Jesus were to come back now. Because you'd have to say, I haven't got any oil here in my lamp. So we need to increase the supply that God's given us. That's the second parable that we have there. The parable is simple. It's like Matthew 25, he says, To one he gave five talents of money, to another he gave two talents of money, to another one talent, each according to his ability, and then he went on a journey. So we have the story here. The, the, the landowner or the, the, the boss, he gives three of his servants three different amounts of money. He says to one ten, to one five, and to what the other one he says, uh, was it five talents, two talents, and then one talent. He says, now, this is it. You got your talents, go and multiply them. Go and do business for me. And so that's what they did. The guy with the five, he went out immediately and he made another five. Like he got his gift from God and he worked hard to increase that gift. So he multiplied the gift that God had given to five. So he, he now had ten. He had five, he made another five, he had ten. The guy with the two, he went out and he worked hard and he multiplied it and he got another two. So he had four. And then the one with one, he says, you know what? I'm a bit scared about this whole thing. I'll take that and I'll dig a hole in the backyard, wrap it up in cloth and I'll put it away and hide it. Just so that when he comes back after traveling a long distance, I'll give it back to him. So it's not that he, it's not that he didn't have ability because he, was, he had the ability. God saw that he had the ability and he gave him according to his ability. It's that he lacked boldness and he lacked faith and he lacked it. He did not want to multiply what he was given. You notice that the, the money wasn't theirs. It was, it was the owner. He gave them the gift. Everything that we have from God is not ours. It, God gives it to us. So you're, you have ability to sing. You have ability to dance. You have ability to read. You have ability to listen. You have ability to care. You have ability to do Whatever God gives you is his ability in you. What you need to be doing with that abundance, because it wasn't yours, he gave it to you, is multiply it. You've got to get down and start working to multiply it. It's not enough to have, say, abundance and say, oh, I've got given it. I don't have to worry about anybody else. I got what I need. He says, multiply it now. Multiply your abundance. And when he came back, the man who had received five talents went in once and put the money to work and gained another five. Also, the one with two talents gained another two. The man with one received, he went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Take the talent from him, he says, when he came back. Give it to the one who has ten talents. And then he says this one, For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now, that doesn't sound just, does it? It doesn't sound fair. Like, if you've got something, you're going to get more, and if you don't have much, even what you have is going to be taken away from you. This sounds upside down. A lot of Jesus' teaching is kind of upside down. He's saying to you, if you work at multiplying it, it won't be taken away from you. You'll get more and more and more. But if you don't use what you got, he says, even what you think you have 
is going to be taken away from you. You see, because the things that God gives you are for to be used, not to be stored in the ground. The giftings and the talents that you receive from God because he gives you those are to be used and to be multiplied. They're not to be put in the ground. You don't put them in the ground and say, I'm too embarrassed, I'm too ashamed, I'm too scared to use these things. You take them and you use them even though you're embarrassed and you're ashamed and you're scared. You take them and you step out and you use them and you multiply them. And he says, and if you multiply them, I'll give you more, he says. If you use what I give you, I'll give you more. But if you don't use what I give you, Even what you think you have will be taken away from you. God is interested in giving you abundance. He gives you everything that you need at the beginning. He says, look, increase that oil, that relationship with me, increase it. Don't just sit there, increase that. Then he gives you gifts and talents and he says, don't just sit there with the gift and talents. Don't bury them in the ground. Use those, use those gifts and talents. And then he finally says, I'm watching. We'll be assessed on how we use God's abundance. He says, all the nations will be gathered to him and he will separate from the people, one from the other. He'll separate sheep from goats. The king said, come you who are blessed by my father, take inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. That's the challenge of abundance. What are you doing with your talent? You see, God, you can't have anything unless you get it from God. He's the source of the oil. Then he says, if you've got the, don't just sit with just a little bit of oil. Get a whole lot of oil. He's the source of the gifts because he gives you the gifts. He says, don't just sit with your gift. He says, multiply your gift. And he says, and I'm watching you, what you do with it. And it says, unless you use it social, in social justice situations, unless you're looking for those who have not and, and spend yourself for those, he says, I'm going to hold you accountable for what you got. Now, they take it out of the economy of finances because that's one aspect of it. It's a whole lot of things. It's time, it's energy, it's resources, it's a whole lot of things. It's not just money we're talking about here. It's your time. It's the time you spend. Somebody will come into your life and it's going to cost you to sit and listen to them. You know, I don't think I want to do that. You know, I don't want to go out of my way for that person. Secretly, mystically, Jesus rests in the life of the person that you diss. The person that you put away. The one that takes your time, the one that takes your energy, the one that takes your resources, the one that is in need, the one that is in poverty, spiritual poverty or physical poverty, the one that is disowned by land and has no, nowhere to, to rest ahead, the one that sits there and needs something, there mystically behind them stands Jesus watching and waiting for you to respond to them. And he's watching because he's watching what you're doing with what he gave you. He's watching what you are doing with what he has gifted you with. He's watching 
to see whether there's some sense of social justice within you. He's watching. And he's keeping a tally. The warnings are kind of scary. There's a common warning through all of these three things. And the common warning is, if you don't have the extra oil, he's going to say to you, I do not know you. So just imagine that you're coming up to the gates and you, oh, I'm up there now. We died or we've been standing before God there. And that, you know, I just had enough to get in, I think. And he looks to you and he says, you know what? I don't know you. You went to church. You had some time of prayer. You got your little oil and you thought you were okay, but you didn't get the extra and you don't have enough. So you don't get in here because I don't know you. You don't develop, you didn't develop, you develop religiosity, but you didn't develop a relationship with me. I'm sorry. That's scary. And if you're not working to increase his talents, this is what he said to the man who buried his talent and throw the worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, I didn't know that God was going to be so cross just because I didn't develop the talents he gave me. I didn't know that God was looking at me and he was saying to me, unless I increase what God has given me, I'm going to burn you. You see, with the gift of God comes the responsibility from God to actually use the gifting. You know, if you don't use it, he's watching what you're doing with it. You think, well, God has gifted me. I've got lots of money. You ask the question, why then do I have lots of money? Is it that I should be fat and have lots of money while others have nothing? If God were to give you lots of money, the reason he gave you lots of money in the kingdom of God is that you can distribute to those who lack so that you can give and there could be equality. Not that I should command that of you, but that you on your heart should be praying and say, God, what do you want me to do? And he will direct you by his spirit what to do. We don't even take up an offering here, so we're not asking for your money. But you need to ask, you need to face this thing. If God gives you something, you have a responsibility before God with the thing that he gives you. What did he give you? He gives you time. He gives you energy. He gives you two ears to listen to someone. He gives you a mouth to speak to somebody. He gives you eyes to read and eyes to see needs in front of you. He gives you hands to help and touch those who are in need. He gives you feet to take you places where you can go to help people. He gives you everything that you need for life and godliness so that you can be an abundant blessing to anybody you meet. That's how much he's given. And if you don't use those, he will say these words to you. Away from me. Throw them into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing. Of that horrible, horrible warning coming through there. You know, this, we don't want to hear this from Jesus, do we? The third warning is simply this. He will reply, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, when he's talking about the sheep and the goats, he says, you didn't do for me. And then he says, and they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. I, chapter 25 is a problem for me theologically in Scripture. It's a problem theologically because it has a lot of onus on what you have to do to get saved. 
you know, for by grace are we saved through faith, that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Fine. So we get saved and Jesus saved us, but we can't earn our salvation. You can't earn, you can't do anything to get saved. But this chapter actually says, but once you are saved, verse 10 and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, But you are God's workmanship, created unto good works, that you should walk in them. So before you get saved, you've got to remember when you get saved, you can't buy your salvation, but when you get your salvation, you better work in it because you have to live it out. It's not enough to get something from God and say, thank you very much. I'm the end of the exercise. God never says that you are the end of the exercise. You are only the channel through which you are to minister to others. You are to be Jesus to others. You are to give like Jesus gave to you. You are to give to others. You are never the end in yourself. Don't think that God is sitting up and said, Ruth, you're the end in yourself. I'm just going to go die for you. No, Ruth, I'm choosing you because you need to do something for others. And I will live in you and I will walk through you, says Jesus. And I will be for you every strength that you need so that you can be Jesus to others. And he will equip you to do that, Ruth. You are never the end in yourself. You're always a means for others. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. You're always somebody else's solution. So here's some guidelines. Where do we start in terms of our giving? Well, I suppose we start with our family first. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. Here's this whole idea again. God is looking, he says, if you're not looking after your family, your direct family's needs. So if I, it comes down to Nathan and, and, and Jade and Renee, and if Jen and I don't look after our direct family, or my mum and dad, and I see them in need, and if I don't take a moral responsibility and say, I'm going to meet that need, then God says, you are worse than an unbeliever. So he's actually looking and saying, if you don't take some moral responsibility for your Family and live with your family, he says, you are worse than an unbeliever. The, 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 the thing is, you know, what's an unbeliever get waiting for him? You know? So you can play games that if you ignore the, the, the dilemma in your own home, watch out, because God's taken a note of that. Guidelines for generosity, simply fellow believers and then every human being. So it's like it starts close in the family and then it spreads out to believers, the church, and then it spreads out further than the church. It spreads out to every believer or every, every, every human being. It says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 9, it says, Let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. So that's everybody. That's the outside circle especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's the church. So God is saying to us, like you have a moral responsibility to your family first, to your church body second, and then to the world. Social justice, what's that requiring of us? Well, it requires each of us to address the issue of how others are, are, are coping with life. How are others in my family coping with life? How are others in my fellowship coping with life? 
How are others in Australia coping with life? What can I do to help my family? What can I do to help my church? What can I do to help Australians? What can I do to help the world? See, God says to us very clearly, we are not the receivers of the benefit. We are the receivers of resources. We are then given stewardship to give those resources out. doesn't matter who you are. Everybody here is a receiver of blessings from God. And you have now a responsibility before God to do something about that. Today is our love feast day. Today is our day where we have our communion service. It's a, a, a communal feast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul was having a problem with the church because he says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you're having. He says, you know, there are people who are up on the hill who haven't finished working and when they come down to have this meal, he says, it's all eaten up. You've eaten it all up and you're drunk and they had nothing. They got nothing to drink. He says, this is not. See, this feast was for the recognition of equality in the body and for serving one another. That's what the love feast was all about. Jesus actually showed us this at the Passover lamb. He sat there and it was time, time for the last supper, the Passover time. And he got down after the meal and he began to wash, his serv- wash the disciples' feet. And he says, as I'm doing to you, as I'm washing your feet, you are to do to each other. This is something I'm laying down for you. This meal is to me an expression of service to one another. Nothing ever ends with us. We are only the means by which others are blessed. That's how God fixes up. I think that God likes us living in a world that's unfair. You know why? Because we have the solution to the problem. And he is watching us to see if we exercise the solution to the problem. God watches and says, Now, do to others as you've been done to by me. He's watching now and saying, What's your moral responsibility to others here? That's economy. That's economy. That's what it is. In our world, it's everybody for himself. You can't have mine. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. We get as many toys as we can, and when we die, the one who dies with the most toys is the winner. No, that's losing. If you can give it all away before you die and love Jesus through it all, then you have won, and you have a treasure in heaven waiting. Because when you give it all away, you lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy. Social justice. This feast, the meal that we had, it's about serving others. It's the family in action. It's the body in action. And Jesus made it all possible because he in his incredible infinite wealth left all his wealth to come for us, to die for us, so that we could have fellowship with him. And we're to replicate that in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to understand this better. Lord, for those of us who are here who just have oil in one lamp and no extra oil, 
Lord, I ask that you'd help us to develop a hunger and a thirst for you, Father, so that this week we would develop more and more resources in you, Father. Lord, for those who have gifts and talents, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to use those and multiply those gifts and talents for you. And Father, help us to see you in the situations that surround us so that we can minister to you and that we can share the things that you have given us, Father, with those that have nothing, Father. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We ask you also that you would bless the food that we eat at this table. Help us to share with one another, to give generously to each other. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you.